Welcome into episode 115 of the Natural Hattrick Podcast alongside Craig Morgan. Where's your nutty hattie now? <laughs> You're going to run out of ways to say that, Ted aren't you? Edward G. Robinson. Okay. I, I we talked about this, haven't we? The worst no. casting ever in Edward G. Robinson in the Ten Commandments. You probably haven't seen the Ten Commandments, of course, because you're, you're not of my generation. I think we have, uh, well, I shouldn't say we have talked about that. You have talked about that, and I have listened. This is a better way to put it. That's Craig Morgan. There is no Jamie Eisner. I'm Luke Lipinski. We've got a lot to get into today. We've got some, got some good topics, I think, to get into. We we're going to preview the Columbus Blue Jackets, a team that had their best season in franchise history last year, went on a remarkable run during the regular season, uh, ultimately still have not ever won a playoff series in franchise history, but they're knocking on the door, and you get the feeling that maybe once they, they win that one series, they could maybe go on a on a run in the playoffs. Or maybe last year was uh, just a flash in the, the pan. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll get into that later on in the show. The National Predators made the Stanley Cup last year. We're going to discuss them as well. But we're going to start with some big broadcasting news. Do you want to hear it first? Do I want to hear it? Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Well, it's Billy Crystal, I think, impersonating Edward G. Robinson. That's not going to show up on the podcast? It's not going to show up on the podcast. No. Why not? Are you going to play it? That's not. The mic's not going to pick that up. No? No. What if I held it right to the mic? You could do that. It'd be awkward and it wouldn't sound good, but go ahead. Okay. I'll do it then. <laughs> Clearly, you're trying to dissuade me. From no, I, 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 I want to hear it after the this show the now. no fun zone here. I really care about whatever you're talking about right now, Craig. <laughs> I do. I just don't know that the listeners do. <laughs> Uh, Mike Milbury, get ready for more Milbury. Oh, boy. That's what they should call the segment, too. Milbury to the extreme. This is hard on a couple fronts. Yes, it is. Not seeing Eddie Olchek in the booth is, is hard enough dealing with what he's dealing with. But then to go and replace him with a guy who, in spite of his considerable NHL experience as a player, coach, executive, somehow can't do analysis and somehow comes off as offensive most of the time well yeah it wasn't just somehow during the stanley cup last year he just he was offensive <laughs> and now he's going to be what, what is his role now he's, he's basically he's, he's eddie old he's filling in with doc and pierre so it's mm. so now just to be clear it's doc emmerich yes a, a hall of fame broadcaster you gotta, you gotta love doc uh, mike milbury who is controversial among the fans that is the kind way of putting it and Pierre, who's also somewhat controversial among the fans. <laughs> not, not controversial, but... close personal friends with NBC executives. <laughs> so that's what you got. Yeah, that's... that's. Uh, I mean, Eddie O is so good at it yeah. that it was going to be a drop-off no matter what. Look, but, uh, there are people that hate Eddie Olchek's take on things, too. Really? Yeah, I think I have terrific. never met any of them. I mean, I guess if you're on TV, there's going to be somebody that hates what you do it's no matter... nature of the business, yeah. right? So there's that. Yeah. Here, here we go. We've got a list, okay? Oh, boy. Now, I've gotten some feedback. It's the only negative feedback we've ever gotten on the show that doesn't revolve directly around Jamie and his presence on the show. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try... And Jamie's and... not on right now, by the way. No, he's we've, not. We've... He locked the door, right? Yeah, he yeah, came yeah. in here. He is... He's there right now looking sad at the glass, but yeah. we're not letting him in. Just kind of scratching it, it's at the glass. It's soundproof glass in case you're wondering. Like a dog that, that needs to be fed or something. TSN put out their top 50 NHL players this week, and I understand Who's at is... the top, Luke? Who's at the top? Connor McDavid's at the top. Hmm. Uh, I will just... This is the last time I'm going to talk about this, okay? Because every promise? list... Well, no, I can't make that yeah, promise. I don't think I can hold you to that. It's the last time I'm going to take this angle on it, okay? I... Connor McDavid's a great player. I'm not ruling out the possibility that one day he goes down as a top three player of all time. I love watching him play. Uh, his his commercial for was it NHL 18 that he where he's all the different characters in the commercial. Have you seen this commercial? Yes, I have. Seen it's this. pretty fantastic. Uh, he's he seems like a really good guy off the ice. Really fun to watch play. He has saved a franchise that was going the very wrong direction. He's number one on every list now as the best player in the world, which. That's fine. It's, I don't think that's egregious by any means. But the negative feedback has come from Oilers fans. They're like, well, you're just you're talking up Crosby because he's on the Penguins. I, I will just say this. And, and the opening line to the article is, is the best, okay? Frank Cervelli wrote the article, but he's not the only one who, who compiled the list, right? This was sort of a, a composite among TSN writers to come up with the list. 
The opening line is, not even back-to-back Conn Smythe trophies were enough for Sidney Crosby to hold off Connor McDavid for one more year. Or Stanley Cups. Yes. So what you're saying is... Forget all the evidence in front of you. We're going to push a new number one. Is that what they're saying? Well, what I'm reading is Connor McDavid was going to be no, number one no matter what anybody we, we else did. We were determined did. to put him here, okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean... They basically just said, look, somebody could win two Stanley Cups and be the Stanley Cup MVP in back-to-back years, and he wasn't going to be better than Connor McDavid in our eyes. And that's exactly what happened. Now, you were looking at number three. That's Eric Carlson. You were saying you might even have him ahead of Connor McDavid right now. Again, this is supposed to be right now. Yep. So Not projecting here. My stance, and I will, I will, I'm getting to an actual point here in a second that has nothing to do with Sidney Crosby or the Penguins. If you're saying, if you're saying, if you're one of those people that says Sidney Crosby is one of the 10 to 15 best players of all time, I think that's, that's at least, there's a decent amount of people out there that says that. I think so. Now, the last two years have been the best of his career. So you're saying a player that is one of the 10 to 15 best of all time at the peak of his career is not the best in the league. So you are then saying Connor McDavid is the best player of all time because he had well, 30 goals in the he's season. he's certainly in top 10 then already. Yeah, automatically. Uh, ahead of Sidney Crosby, apparently. Now, I don't want to be uneducated, Craig, so can you just tell me? And this is not meant to bash Connor McDavid. Again, he may go down as a better player than Sidney Crosby when all is said and done. He doesn't play defense, and Crosby's one of the best defensive players in the league. And oh, by the way, Sidney Crosby led the NHL in goals last year, too. Just had a conversation with the Coyotes' Max Domi about this very thing, and he was not in any way criticizing Connor McDavid. Obviously, Connor McDavid's a great player, and he will be the best player in the league at some time in the very near future. It could future. be by next year. It's, it's just not be. right now. It could be. But what Max was saying is when you're, when you're a player and you watch the game, you, you see all the subtle things that Sidney Crosby does. He said, look, if he floated, if, you, if he wanted to focus on his offense more, he could have 130 points. And he's probably right. But you see all the details of him coming 10 feet deeper into the defensive zone, all the things that he does to make sure that this team is sound in all three zones— He's the most complete player in the game. He is. It's, it, there's just not an argument in my mind at this point. And then when you, when you take into account the success that he's had the last two seasons, slow the roll on Connor McDavid. Just slow the roll. I get it. He's, he's the shiny new toy. Everybody loves watching the guy play. He is spectacular, and he is the next generational player, but he has not surpassed Sidney Crosby yet. No way, no how. And that's where I want to go with this. I want to take this conversation away from Crosby and the Penguins, and I want to say simply this. It's not just TSN's list. It's a bunch of different lists, and they all have the same headline. Oh, there's a new number one. It's Connor McDavid. Okay, again, Connor McDavid led the NHL in points last year, 30 goals. I'm pretty sure he's not the only player in NHL history to score 30 goals in the season. (laughs) Uh, We talked about this earlier in the week. We were talking about his candidates candidacy for MVP if he didn't get to 30 goals, if you remember, because it's very rare for a guy to win the MVP, a forward, without scoring 30 goals. Now, I fully believe he's capable of going out there and putting up 45 goals and 85 assists this year. I I don't deny that by any—again, not a shot at Connor McDavid. My point is, it feels—it does feel like an agenda, whether it's just to get clicks or whatever, and where I'm going is, should I just assume in two years— all of these are going to say, hey, there's a new number one. It's Austin Matthews, right? <laughs> because that's where we're going, right? Just the sell. So when McDavid is the best player in the world, he's not going to be the best player in the world on these lists. He'll be passe by then. Nobody will be excited about him anymore. It's it's crazy. And, and look, I, I don't want to say that postseason success is the only thing that matters because it, it that, that ties into who's around you. And Ed, Edmonton has serious issues with who's around them, thanks to their general manager, who we've discussed frequently on this show. But if you look at the postseason last year, we've talked about this as well. Connor McDavid wasn't the best player on his team in the postseason. No. That honor went to Leon Dreisaitl. How are you anointing him number one? How? On, on what basis? Because he won the scoring title? Because they want him to be number one. And and again, Crosby, I, according to this list, was ranked number one each of the last seven years. You could make a real strong argument to me that he wasn't number one some of those years. I'd have to go back and look at the specific years. But this is the best he's ever played and the most he's ever accomplished. And you're pushing somebody else into number one, which, again, my my whole point is I just want everybody to remember this conversation two years from now when somebody else is being pushed into number one over McDavid 
because we've already seen McDavid do everything. And I hope that's the year McDavid wins the Stanley Cup because apparently that doesn't matter on these lists. Now, the whole point of this list, or bringing it up, actually wasn't even that. It was the fact, and Greg Wyshynski is the one that tweeted this out and sort of drew my, uh, my um, focus towards it. Leon Dreisaitl, who you just mentioned, is 23rd overall ahead of guys like Jonathan Taves, who was 7th last year. Dreisaitl wasn't on the list. Uh, Ryan Getzlaff. I mean, I, I guess I can handle that. Patrice Bergeron. Um, Duncan Keith. Those The main one to me was Jonathan Taves. How is Jonathan Taves? Because of his production, it's dropped. It, it has, but we're we're looking at one year with Dreisaitl. And you and yes. I both Again, believe in him. Anointing him too quickly. Just, just pushing off the charts too quickly. Should I just assume this list is going to be 23 Oilers and 23 Maple Leafs and then four other guys by <laughs> next year? Well, there's only one Maple Leaf on this list. Right? Yeah, right now. Yeah. Matthews is 10th. That seems right to me. Well, Mitch Marner's right at the bottom, actually. Okay. Mitch Marner. Interesting. Yeah. Morgan Riley, though, becoming an elite NHL defenseman. Is he? Or so I was told oh. in a story I read. That's very close <laughs> to becoming an elite defenseman. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, Craig. I'm finding that out as I go through this list. Uh, Alex Ovechkin, 22nd. I don't know if I have a problem with that or not. It's just interesting to me. Rounding out the top ten. So it goes McDavid, then Crosby, then Carlson. Patrick Kane is fourth. Uh, Carey Price, fifth. Evgeny Malkin, sixth. Nikita Kucherov, seventh. Brent Burns. Victor Hedman, Austin Matthews. I don't have a problem with the ten players. Neither do I, actually. And I don't have a problem with McDavid being over Crosby. I just have a problem with the reasoning for it. Wait, how can you not have a problem with them? Not have a problem, but have a problem with the reasoning. Those things seem to contradict each other. Well, I guess I don't. It's not a problem with McDavid, though. No, okay, it's not, I get that. It's not. No, it's not a pro Crosby yeah, thing. Yeah, let's stress that we're we're not bashing Connor McDavid in any way, shape, or form. He will be the best player in the league. It may happen by this season. I absolutely think right that's now. possible. That's all we're saying. Yes, he's defense number matters. two or number three. Yes, it does. And he's number two or number three. Eric Carlson again at, at number three. What a jump in his game. And last year he was number nine on this list. So, I mean, he has, he's been climbing. He went from 22 to 10 to 9 to 3. And his game has improved. Can I rant on this one, too? Go ahead. Because just, I just get driven crazy by people who say Carlson's defense really wasn't much of a problem. He admitted it himself, okay? He admitted what it himself. What does he know about his own Sorry, game? we know more about you than you, you do. <laughs> You're wrong when you say your defense was a bit of a problem. You need to work on it more. You're wrong. Well, he worked on it, and his he team did. almost went to the Stanley he Cup. He did. He was... He was an MVP caliber player last season. Yeah. All right, on to the Columbus Blue Jackets, unless you have anybody else on this list. Do they even have anybody on this list? I don't Probably not. It's Columbus. See, wow. Sergei Bobrovsky has to be on here somewhere. Right? Yeah, he was near the top, actually. He was, he was uh, in the second 10. No, third 10. Ooh. Okay. Okay. He won the uh, President Trophy for the second time in the last four seasons, but he's... He's there, and Artemi Panarin 28th? is... yeah. So uh, there you go. Artemi Panarin is 32. Wow. And he Artemi wasn't Panarin. even on the team mm-hmm. last year. So let's get into Columbus. Uh, nice f- segue, by the way. The, thank you. The first note that you have on here is that uh, life sucks in the Metro. <laughs> and I think really that sums up the Blue Jackets. Yeah. You look at this list as we transition to Columbus, and it stands out that the two guys on the list from Columbus, one is the goalie, and one is, was not on Columbus last year when they went on a remarkable run. They won all those games in a row. Remember they had that matchup with Minnesota, the two teams that had just won a ridiculous, I, I believe it was 28 combined straight wins between the two teams. Uh, Columbus was, for a while, threatening to maybe even win the President's Trophy. They ended up not winning a playoff series. They finished with 108 points. But yeah. It sucks to be in the Metro right now. Washington's not going to drop off that much in the regular season. They could. In the regular season? They've lost some significant pieces. We'll see. We'll see what Washington does. They're still a playoff team. They should be a playoff team still, yes. But could they... Could We'll get to this in a minute. But I I could see Washington dropping out of the top spot, certainly. And look, Pittsburgh, he just won back-to-back cups. It's going to take its toll. Those long playoff runs take their toll on a team. It's hard to to repeat, let alone three-peat, and get back there. So... But they should still be a playoff team, they too. Should. And, and, and then you've got, you still got the Rangers who are probably a playoff. It, it's just getting out of the first round in the Metro is no easy task. It's Columbus had 108 points last year. Yeah. It, it, yeah. They were gone quickly. I mean, and there's no guarantee they get back this year. And I guess, I guess that's the point is they are, 
they don't have Connor McDavid. They don't have Austin Matthews. When you look at teams like Edmonton and Toronto that got in last year and you're thinking, okay, well, that was step one. Like, they're on the way up. They've got stud players. Columbus doesn't have one individual generational talent, so they kind of need everybody to pull their weight equally again like they did last year. I don't think it gets any better for Columbus than it did last year where you win 50 games and put up 108 points in the standings. It could get better in the playoffs potentially, but is there any sort of concern in your mind that maybe Cam Atkinson doesn't go off and have the season he had? We put up 35 goals last year, or they miss Brandon Saad or whatever, and Artemi Panarin doesn't mesh quite quickly enough, and they miss the playoffs? Maybe maybe Artemi Panarin is not quite as great without Patrick Kane on his line. Very possible. What do we think of Alex Winberg? Who doesn't have you know a, a lengthy resume of success? He just he jumped out last year. There there are certainly questions around this roster right now. Or if if Sergei Bobrovsky doesn't play Vezina caliber hockey, if, if that happens, then they're they're in trouble honestly because he's still their most valuable player and he obviously won the Vezina Trophy last year. So it's weird to look at a team with 108 points that we're poking holes. Yeah, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, I, I, think, I don't think last year was a fluke by any means. Maybe the 108 points, maybe this is more of like a 99-point team or a 100-point team or whatever, but I, I, they were legitimately good last year. And we haven't talked about Zach Wierenski, who was just phenomenal as a rookie. But there is some concern because of the division they play in. It's not, it's not inconceivable to me that Washington and Pittsburgh both make the playoffs and the Rangers continue to climb and... Either the Islanders or Philadelphia get in, and maybe Columbus just doesn't get the goaltending from Bobrovsky again or something. I mean, there's there's a way they could miss the playoffs after the season they had. That's crazy. Or there's, look, I mean, there's a way they get into the first round and they win finally this year. They, I was really shocked with how quickly Pittsburgh got rid of them in the first round. And what do you think it happened when you analyze that series? Experience, I guess. Yeah. I, Right? I, yeah, that's. I mean, that's one of several factors when you look at that that series. But sure, Pittsburgh knew what it was doing, and this was it was all new to Columbus. But can, but they went out so quick. I don't even know that they got anything out of it. Yeah, I wonder too. And, and then then you go out in the off season and you trade Brandon Todd for Artemi Panarin. Look, the Blackhawks had to move Panarin because they they were worried they weren't going to be able to resign him down the road. The whole thing is crazy because. Brandon Saad left in the the first place because he couldn't make a million dollars more a year from the Blackhawks, and now he's back with that contract. We don't want to get off on a Stan Bowman tangent. Go ahead. No, No, go ahead. This is fun. I really don't. I've I've gone here too many times. It makes me angry. This is why I enjoy it. But what what happens here? I'm really curious to see what the impact of this is because Panarin is a dynamic player, but he has only played with Patrick Kane. How does he adapt to this new system? In some ways, they play with pace. There's some skill there, so maybe he can adapt to this. Or maybe he's a fish out of water. We already know what Brandon Saad looks like alongside Jonathan Taves, which is probably the biggest reason, well, aside from the cap issues, the biggest reason they brought him back. Jonathan Taves desperately needs an effective wing, and Marianos is gone now. He's he's gotten old anyway. He needs somebody on his line, so they bring him back to play with him. What does Artemi Panarin look like in Columbus? It's a good point because... Like you said, Chicago needed to make the trade. Columbus didn't need to make the trade. And it doesn't mean it's a bad trade for Columbus. I mean, it it was clearly the blockbuster of the summer. You're talking about two extremely high-profile players. Panarin has played two seasons in the NHL, and he has 151 points. Rookie of the year. 61 of them goals. Rookie of the year in a year where he stepped in as an unknown. And look, McDavid was hurt for half the season, but there were other good rookies too. So it it was somewhat remarkable for Panarin. Panarin had to be light years ahead of everybody else to win Rookie of the Year, and he was. 77 points as a rookie, 74 in his second year. You mentioned he's been playing with Patrick Kane. There is no Patrick Kane on Columbus. No. Yeah, and I mean, Brandon Saad has been consistently productive his last three, four years, where he's right around the 50 point, just a little over 50 points. So I guess the Blackhawks know what they're going to get. They believe rightly so that he's a better defensive player than Artemi Panarin, so that meshes with the style that Taves plays anyway. He's, he's a guy who probably can go retrieve the puck a little more, too. But you, you lose that dynamic element. Can, can Artemi Panarin translate that to Columbus when he's not playing with, according to TSN, the fourth best player in the game? I don't know. It, it's a gamble, but at the same time, when you look at Columbus's roster, they don't have a lot of those types of high-end offensive talents. No. So you go out and add a piece like that, gambling that he can 
bring you something that you've been lacking in the past, and maybe that's one of those ingredients that helps you get by Pittsburgh, albeit Artemi Panarin hasn't shown well in the postseason. Yeah. I, I don't know. When you look at Columbus's lineup, you're right. They don't have another player like Panarin, and I almost feel like they're, they're a good model. And we talked about this a little bit last year when they were on that crazy winning streak. They're a good model and maybe a more realistic model for teams that are trying to rebuild to follow. Like, you can't count on getting Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews or even Jack Eichel. You have to just sort of draft well for a few years and make some savvy moves here and there. And Columbus has done that. I mean, they've, they've added some players. They you know, you draft Alex Wenberg. You get Cam Atkinson ridiculously. What is he, like a fifth-round pick or fourth-round pick or something? Uh, you just you go out there and you, you piece together a good team with center depth rather than yeah. that elite center. That's that's the I mean, to be honest, that's what the Coyotes are probably doing right now too. I mean they've they've got a very good blue line now in my mind, assuming health of these guys, but when you look at their center position, none of those guys jumps out as an elite number one center, but if Dylan Strom can take the step, they've got four centers that they really feel good about in their depth chart. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the Columbus model. They, have, they play with a lot of pace. There are some interesting pieces on their blue line. You mentioned Wierenski, but they got Seth Jones as well. So they, they have some potential high-end defensemen, and maybe this is another way that you can build it, especially when you have a Vezina-caliber goaltender. Can I just point out, I was at the Coyotes game in Tucson, the preseason game, on Monday of this week. And it was it was interesting because you go to an arena like that, that that doesn't get to see NHL games really ever, right? But they were playing the Ducks in a preseason game. Obviously, the Coyotes affiliate is now in Tucson for the last year plus. The jersey watching in the stands, like there's a lot of Coyotes jerseys, and there were some some Tucson Roadrunners jerseys. But then there's just random jerseys because there's just people that have been NHL fans that finally get to go to a game. There was a Fedor Tutin jersey wow. in the States. <laughs> that one took the cake. the cake. Yeah. What inspired that? I should have gone down and talked to the you guy really and been should. like, maybe no. it was Fedor Tutin. Actually, maybe you wanted to avoid that guy. Yeah. So. I tried to stay on the exact opposite side of the arena at all times. So when he moved, I moved. Sergei Bobrovsky, which I think I mentioned, I think he said he had uh, two of the last four. It's actually two of the last five Vezina trophies. But is he the best goalie in hockey right now? No. He's not. Okay. No. He answered that quickly. I, I, he, do he you disagree? Uh, I think he's one of the top two or three, and he had a great season last year. But, yeah, is he the best? I don't know. He's, probably, probably he's not. just not consistent enough for me to say he's he's the best goalie in the league. Now, look, he was the best goalie last year. I don't yeah. think he didn't deserve the Vesna or anything like that. It's just Carey Price, in my mind, is still the best goalie. And I'm not even sure I'd put Bobrovsky second. I mean, he when he's on his game, he's truly elite. Yeah. The, the year he won with Columbus the first time. That was the lockout shortened season, correct? And he had a 2.00 goals against average. I mean, it was it was fantastic. Last year, 206, uh, seven shutouts. But in between, and I know goals against average isn't everything, but those three years in between, he had a 2.38, a 2.68, and a 2.75. Carey Price is never going to have those numbers. Yeah, and, and that's, I, I guess, what I was getting at, too, is the inconsistency. That's a danger. When we talked about this a little earlier, that's a danger with Columbus. If he can't play at this kind of level... It makes a, a big difference on this team because of their lack in other areas, their, their deficiencies in other areas. And I don't know. I, I don't know what to think of him because he's had two such brilliant seasons when he won the, the award, but he has slipped a bit. Like the season before, 2015-16, his save percentage was 908. That's, yeah. that's not even average. No. It's, he, had a, he had a bad season. When he's on, he can win you any game. But when he's not, I mean, <laughs> he's just he's kind of an average goalie on, on, on those times. And look, he's he's elite more often than he's average, but there are goalies in this league. It's not just Carey Price. There are other goalies in this league that are much more consistently elite. And like even last year in the playoffs, Bobrovsky was he wasn't great by any means. He gave up twenty goals in five games. So this brings me to my next question. And Columbus can't you can't go down this road right now because he's so important to your team but if that bad case scenario plays out like we were talking about earlier where you know all the the things that went right for them last year don't go so right this season if Panarin doesn't fit in if Alex Winberg falls off a little bit uh, if Cam Atkinson isn't the insane offensive producer that he was last season he uh, Bobrovsky has two years left on his contract what do you do you think about moving a guy like this because he could help the long-term project or do you factor him into your long-term plans when he's he's already 29 years old? 
Yeah, what is he making? About seven and a half million a year, 7.425. Yeah, exactly. And Um, he will, in fact, uh, he, well, he just turned 29, but. So you're saying, let's, let's just say we get to three days before the trade deadline this season, and Columbus, by a combination, not of, of them being bad, but just simply not being... They've fallen off a little bit. A little bit. And they're in the Metro, and mm-hmm. it looks like, at best, they're going to maybe sneak in as the eighth team in the East, is basically what you're saying? Do you entertain the thought of trading Bobrovsky? Yeah. Maybe you think about it the following year. The, yeah. You know, instead of then. Because I, I still think you're like, set up to be good next year, too. Yeah. Teams like trading for... Sometimes teams like trading for a piece that has a year left on his contract, too, so it's not strictly a rental. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's some value there. But obviously, you have to find a replacement, and that's no easy task. Maybe it's but Jonas Corposalo. I mean, they do they, like him. They do. And, and again, Bobrovsky's going to turn 30 next season. That's a big number. That's fine for a goalie, you, though. It is for a number one, absolutely. Yeah. It is. I but think you do other things, you know, and what could you bring in return? I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm exploring that idea. That's the key is what could you bring in return? Like, I'm not, I'm not shopping Sergei Bobrovsky, but if some team comes to me, let's say Winnipeg, and they're having a good season, but they don't have goaltending. Why would you say Winnipeg? I, just because they have a really good team, and they don't have goaltending. Um, and they're, and they're, Steve Mason's the answer. And, well, maybe he is. Maybe I will be proven. Maybe he is. I don't know. But uh, if they come to you and they're like, look, we've got a plethora of prospects, which they do, mm-hmm. and – we really want a goalie. We think we can go on a run this year. Hey, would you also like a coach? He has four years left on his deal. I don't think Columbus needs a coach right now. Uh, then, you know, if somebody blows you away with an offer, I don't think I don't think Bobrovsky's untradeable by any means right now, which sounds sort of crazy because he just won the Vezina, but not when you look a little bit deeper. You trade when guys are most valuable, right? Yeah. About John Tortorella and just yeah, the Which crazy... John Tortorella will we see this year? The turnaround it may depend on the had. fortunes of the Blue Jackets, right? Yeah, but yeah, exactly, from just... That disaster with, with Team USA, right? Oof. To this? Yeah, I forgot about that. Boy, that was an issue last year even at the World Cup. Remember the, the discussion about the anthem? Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, controversial figure, and he just remade his image entirely last season with his team, but which is the real John Tortorella? I don't know. Well, you're, I mean, you're right to question what happens if things go south with this team. Is he going to stick to being the new Tortorella? But I was really impressed with the fact that a guy that's an old-school coach, and as much as people made fun of him a little bit before last season, mm-hmm. uh, he had had a lot of success in this league, and he's won a Stanley Cup. He's been a major part of, of USA Hockey for a while now. He's had success in this league. I was very impressed that he was willing to adjust his coaching style and his tendencies and his uh, techniques for interacting with his players. And we saw it over the course of the season, and we heard it in interviews. But when I was at the NHL Awards show, he said it a few times. And he said, look, a lot of my players have taught me stuff this year. Uh, I spoke to Nick Foligno one-on-one for a while. And, of course, he's the captain of this team. And he said we we owe a lot of this to, to Torts coming in and being willing to change himself, too. And I think that message means a lot more when you're a coach with a fairly young team saying, you know, you got to learn this from me and this and that, and you need to be learning all the time and improving your game. It means more when the coach is also trying to do that on his own. That, to me, is the biggest reason they had success last year. Maybe he looked in his mirror after he was in Vancouver. Well, yeah, or maybe he just looked for Calgary in the hallway. It would be a good low point in life, don't you think? And then all the stuff that happened in international play. Yeah. Maybe that's a good time to re-examine. Maybe. It worked. It paid off. It did. They it had did. a great For one season. season anyway. It did, yeah. Oh, I, said, I sense some skepticism. Well, no, I, I, I don't, I don't want to convey that. I just Okay. We've seen other sides of John Tortorella, too, and I'm oh, not yeah. convinced that they're, they're dead just okay. because he had this one season. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, couple other names that we did throw out. Cam Atkinson, 35 goals last year. What a crazy season that was. Is there any chance he can do that again? There's a chance, but I would you expect that? No. So what's a reasonable He's expectation? 28. And suddenly, I don't know. He was the 157th overall pick in 2008. So again, I see him scoring 25 goals. Yeah, I think they might be okay with that, especially at his salary. That'd be fine. But that that that's a big number. That was a that was a big leap. It was sort of out of character. 
But he has always, I shouldn't say always, he wouldn't have gone 157th overall in 2008, but he, over the last few years, has shown flashes of being a guy that can score goals. He had 27 the year before. He's in the right system with the bright guys, too. You can can take that into account as well. Four years in a row, he's gone over 20. He's gone 21, 22, 27, 35. I I think that if, if I'm running the Blue Jackets, I'm expecting about, I'm counting on about 27 from what he did two years ago, essentially. So, I don't know if that is what you want from your number one goal scorer or if they're going in with the thought that Panarin will be their number one would, goal scorer. I would think that they believe Panarin's going to be their number one goal scorer. He, okay. he sort of needs to be. They, they gave up an awful lot to get him, and, and clearly that's that's the, the dynamic that they're missing on this team, and Artemi Panarin has been over 30 goals both of his seasons in the NHL. Again, he played with Patrick Kane, so we'll see how that pans out for him, but... He is a remarkably gifted player. You, there's no doubt that he has a high skill level, and he likes to shoot, and he's got an accurate shot. Yeah, look, I mean, that, that trade could end up working out great for Columbus. It's just they didn't have to make the deal. Now, when a guy like Panarin becomes available, maybe you feel like you do have to make the deal, right? But just because that, that sort of player isn't typically out there. Right, so. and he's, he's, hit, he's already in his prime, too. That's the thing, because he was yeah. an old rookie when he came. He's 25 years old. He'll be 26 very early in this season, so... Right now is when the production's coming from him. And give them credit, too. They're, they're not afraid to make big deals. I mean, you mentioned Seth Jones earlier. They gave up Ryan Johansson for him. So they are not mm-hmm. afraid in that front office to, to do what they feel is necessary to improve and take the next steps. I don't think they're going to be content just making the playoffs again. Uh, I think the biggest reason to be encouraged about this team is Zach Wierenski, though. I, I, I think he can be even better. That's where the league is going, too, huh? It's amazing how many blue lines you can look at now and say that. I mean, we, we've talked about the Western Conference with Nashville, with, with Calgary, with Anaheim, and now maybe maybe the Coyotes are, are lumped in there if, if Oliver ekman Larson does get back to that elite level. More and more teams seem to be moving in this direction. You understand how important it is to have those puck movers. And that, it's not, I hate using that term because it's... It's more than that. Yeah, it's much more than that. It's, it's being able to get to the puck quickly in your own end. It's, it's being able to defend... Well, but defend a lot of times a different way, not necessarily a physical presence, a, a lumbering physical presence, which can be a liability in many other ways. It's it's getting in shooting lanes, getting the stick in there, being again, being quick on the puck and getting the puck out of the defensive zone quickly so that you don't have to defend. That's a huge part of it, right? Yeah. People look and, and if you're just watching the game, you're saying like, well, he didn't even really have to make that many plays one on one. Well, that's the goal. That's probably because he was doing a good job preventing it from ever getting to that point. Like, it, it shows up. It's it's tough to evaluate a defenseman if you're just casually watching the game. I mean, if that's not your job, why would you be watching random defensemen on teams that you don't pay attention to that often and, and trying to analyze everything they do? But you do notice when Johnny Gaudreau is coming down the right side and he's making a good play and Zach Wierenski dives back and, and you know reaches out with the stick and knocks the puck away. That's great. But the better play is Johnny Gaudreau never got the puck because Wierenski made a play in the neutral zone 30 seconds earlier. And that, that to me, is what he's good at. Yep. So I think that's it for Columbus. Do you have anything else? I'm good. All right, we're going to preview a team now that went to the Stanley Cup last season. And they're already sort of – there's bumps in the road for Nashville. So we're going to get into that next. All right, we continue our summer preview series with a look now at the team that went to the – Stanley Cup last year out of the Western Conference. The Nashville Predators were joined by Adam Vingan of the Tennessee, and you can find him on Twitter, at Adam, V-I-N-G-A-N. Adam, thanks so much for the time. I guess the best place to start with this team is, are they built and or capable of of getting back to the Cup Final this year? I think they are. Uh, They look a little bit different. Uh, They lost Mike Fisher to retirement in August. Uh, they traded Colin Wilson uh, to the Colorado Avalanche on July 1st. They lost James Neal uh, to the Vegas Golden Knights in the expansion draft in June. Uh, so in a lot of ways, they're going to be relying on a lot of younger players who showed flashes of potential during the Stanley Cup playoffs and had impacts at different rounds. Kevin Fiala, Freddie Goudreau, Pontus Auberg, uh, they reunited with Scott Hartnell after he was bought out by the Columbus Blue Jackets. They signed Nick Bonino to essentially replace Mike Fisher in terms of the way that they both approached the game. Um, They re-signed Ryan Johansson to a large contract. They re-signed Victor Arvidsson. They lost Ryan Ellis uh, for at least the first few months of the season, probably the first half as he continues to recover from 
off-season knee surgery that he had after the Stanley Cup final. So in a lot of ways, they are going to look different. Uh, but I do think they are still a very talented team. The core is still there. Roman Yossi, the new captain. P.K. Subban, Matias Ekholm, Ryan Johansson, uh, Philip Forsberg, Victor Arvidsson. Uh, there is still a lot to like about this team. So I certainly believe that they do have it within them to compete for a Central Division championship, which they've never won in their 20 years of existence and potentially a return trip to the Stanley Cup final. All right, we're going to dive into all those pieces you just mentioned in a moment, but I want to stop for just a moment and ask you to recap for us what it was like to cover that unexpected and remarkable run to the Cup final last year. Any anecdotes you compiled along the way? Any any memories? Well, I think it was fun for me to see how Nashville as a city uh, rallied around the Predators uh, when the NHL All-Star Game was here in January 2016, it was a really great showing for the city in terms of the support that it brought, the game and the skills competition and all of the surrounding events. But a lot of that, I thought, had to do with, well, you have all of the best NHL players uh, in one place downtown. Anyone would be excited about that. Uh, so it was good to see the Predators themselves generate that much interest of course, one of the big storylines was as the Predators continued to advance through the playoffs, it got to a point where uh, usually downtown Nashville in mid-June is uh, consumed by the CMA Fest, the Country Music Con uh, Concert Festival. I believe it was Game 6, uh, the Country Music Festival and Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Final were occurring at the same time. There were tens of thousands of people downtown. It was really cool to see the two worlds sort of collide and mesh, um, and I, I think that was I think that was what was best for uh, the team uh, during the Stanley Cup Final was you got to see Nashville as a market highlighted in a way that it never has before, mm. and I know there is a lot of skepticism about how certain uh, teams in the National Hockey League do in certain markets. Um, we have no idea what you're talking about you. here. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was about to say, speaking to you in Arizona, there are certainly, uh, certainly some similarities there. But I think what it showed in terms of Nashville was that Nashville, yeah, I, I think the, the non-traditional market label, I think it can be offensive to some people. Um, but I think the Predators embrace that. Uh, one of the things that they like to do during the, during the playoffs is they will you know, take an old beat-up car and paint it with the opposing team's uh, <laughs> yes. colors and logos. And then for charity and for their foundation, you can take a couple whacks at it with a sledgehammer. They call it the smash car. The smash car wouldn't fly in Boston. It wouldn't fly in Toronto. It wouldn't work in Montreal. It, it only see, would work probably in Nashville, and that's what makes it's so great is that you can incorporate these quote unquote non-traditional events and entities into your product. Uh, so I think from the opportunity for Nashville to showcase itself as a hockey market that has definitely grown exponentially, I think in my opinion was the highlight of the run outside of the action on the ice. Maybe it's too early to ask this question and, and certainly winning the cup would have, would have altered this perhaps even more, but does, it, does a run like that help cement a team's place in the, the culture or the fabric of the city? That's a good question, and I'm, I'm curious to see what interest is like at the start of the season, uh, start of the regular season, uh, because they open, the, uh, regular, they open the regular season on the road at Boston, then they actually go to Pittsburgh for a Stanley Cup rematch, and then they come home for their third game of the season at home for the first time against the Philadelphia Flyers on the 10th of October. And if I recall correctly, the uh, Tootsie's annual birthday party is on the <laughs> same day as uh, the home opener. Of course, Tootsie's being the iconic honky-tonk bar across the street. I have but no I idea. I've never been there. Very, never been there. <laughs> yes, it's going to have a very Stanley Cup final-esque feel to it that day, I think, as, uh, as the game approaches. So I am curious to see if there is sustained, sustainable interest in the team throughout the slog of a regular season. You know, this will first and foremost always be a football state. The Tennessee Titans are 2-1. and one. Uh, 
there's always a lot of buzz around the University of Tennessee, even though that Knoxville is about two to three hours east of Nashville. Um, it's, it's SEC football country here in general. Uh, Alabama was here on Saturday to play Vanderbilt, so a lot of interest in that as well. Um, I'm curious to see if there is more than just casual interest after that first game because I remember having a conversation with somebody uh, that I used to work with, uh, and she wasn't a, a sports writer necessarily, but someone who was up on sports and helped cover prep sports and things of that nature. And we were talking about her interest in hockey and and the um, the Predators, they usually play at home on Saturday nights. They really like their Saturday night home games. People here love going to games. Absolutely love the atmosphere. The, you know, the Predators do a great job of balancing the on-ice product with the in-game entertainment. And they'll go with a couple of friends. They'll have a couple of beers. They'll hang out on Broadway. They'll have a great time. Let's just say for, for the sake of the story, they play that Saturday game at home against Chicago, which is always a big game around here. Then they go, let's say they go on a four-game road trip. It's, you know, she said, this person I'm speaking about, that I'm, you know, even if I have a great time at that game on Saturday, I'm probably not going to devote my evening to sitting down on the TV and watching them play. I'll check the score on my phone uh, before I go to bed, but, it, you know, the I'm not going to, to devote, you know, four nights of my week to sit down and watch them play on TV. So I'm curious to see if their television ratings locally have a big boost and if they can, as I've been saying, sustain the excitement after that first couple of first couple of games. Will mm-hmm. people really care uh, about a mid-November game at home against the Winnipeg Jets the same way that they care about game one of the playoffs? Probably not. But will more people care about that game this year than they did last year because of what happened last year? Adam, one of the players that's been floating around out there and Nashville has either right or wrong, they've they've been linked to him, is Matthew Shane. In your mind, are the Predators serious about wanting him? And if so, what would they be willing to give up or what would it take to get him? Well, the reports uh, the reports from various insiders you know, indicate that the Predators are among the teams that have at least inquired about Matthew Shane. But then again, you know, if you're if you're a team serious about improving and a player of Matthew Shane's caliber is available, you're not doing your job if you're not inquiring. What makes it more difficult, I believe, from the Predators standpoint, is as according to reports, the the ask for Matthew Shane is fairly high, and the Avalanche would like established NHL players in return, particularly defensemen. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for the draft picks and prospects; they're looking for for players that they can immediately place within their lineup. The Predators are in a situation now where it's going to be harder to do that because they lost Ryan Ellis to injury. If Ryan Ellis was healthy, perhaps they'd be more, maybe more willing to entertain the idea. But he's out through at least January probably. They just made Matias Ekholm, who's a player that, they were, that the Avalanche were reportedly interested in, an alternate captain. Um, and they do have defensive prospects, Samuel Garrard, Alex Carrier, who are high-end prospects, but that doesn't seem to be what they're looking for, Colorado. So that isn't to say that Nashville may not be poking around. I just believe that based on the injuries on their blue line and the Predators' recent uh, history of trading defensemen, I'm not necessarily sure they're inclined to pluck from that defensive core again right now. Okay. I want to ask you about the evolution of Ryan Johansson. They signed him to an eight-year, $64 million contract, of course, the, the largest offer the team has ever made to a player, if I'm not wrong. I think you printed that, actually. What did he do to warrant this? Is there more production in him to elevate to another level, to a top 20-point producer, since I believe his salary is now, now among the top 20 in the league? Right, and, and to your point that you mentioned, you know, that's where you have to be very particular with that, and I've had to spell that out a couple of times, that people will say, well, what about the 14-year, $110 million contract that Shea Weber got? Well, that was an offer sheet that was matched. The Predators didn't offer Shea Weber that contract. They had they decided to match the offer made by Philadelphia. So in terms of contracts that the Predators have written up themselves, yes, Ryan Johansson's eight-year, $64 million contract is the longest and richest in franchise history. I think the reason what – I think what gave them the uh, – what gave them the confidence to do that – was 
uh, how he matured over the course of the season, being their first-line center from the day he arrived, and particularly the way he played in the playoffs, 13 points in 14 games, before suffering a freak thigh injury, uh, which required emergency surgery in the Western Conference Final. He, of course, he missed the entire Stanley Cup Final against Pittsburgh. Um, so I, I, they saw enough from him to give him that contract. They made him an alternate captain last week. Uh, so it seems, at least outwardly, that the issues that seemed to dog Ryan Johansson when he was in Columbus, whether it was his public contract dispute on his last contract, the reports that John Tortorella called him out for being out of shape, that he was a healthy scratch near the time, near the end of his tenure in Columbus. None of those problems seem to exist in Nashville. I think the one thing that they would like for him, if there is something that they would like for him to do more of, it's score goals, because he can. He has scored 33 goals in the NHL. He has, uh, if I recall correctly, has 22 goals in more than 100 games in Nashville. And his last season in Columbus, he had 26. So he had a career high in assists last season at 47. But I feel like he has shown to have 30-goal potential. I think the Predators need him to score more goals, especially when you lose James Neal, who is one of, I believe, six or seven active NHL players who has scored at least 20 goals in each of his first nine NHL seasons. They lost the guarantee, essentially they lost the guaranteed 20 goals. And that isn't to say that Ryan Johansson is going to be the lone guy to do it, but they know that he can do it and he probably needs to. Adam, from a perspective outside of Nashville, it, it seemed like P.K. Subban's first season there was pretty much went as well as anybody could have ever hoped for. Was that the case? It seemed like it went almost perfectly for, for him in his first year there. I think from a uh, marketing and PR standpoint, it certainly did. Uh, people loved him here. People loved to have him. They sold out their first preseason home game last season for the first time ever, and that was because he was playing in that game most likely. Uh, he did have an injury problem. Uh, it was a suspected herniated disc that kept him out of 16 games halfway through last season, and he came into camp a little banged up too. But he did play well. I thought he got a lot better in the last quarter of the season and through the playoffs. He and Matias Ekholm made it for a great shutdown defense pair in the Stanley Cup playoffs particularly. Uh, so he comes into camp healthy this year, which I think will help. Uh, because of Ryan Ellis's injury, it looks like uh, he and Ekholm may be separated. He could be reunited with Alexa Yemelin as a pair. And people in Montreal... Uh, based on the people who chime into my Twitter timeline, uh, don't look at that, don't recall that pair very fondly uh, from a couple of years ago. Um, but they do have history together and could play together. Uh, but, you know, he's been great uh, for the team in the community. He's been great for, for the team from a media standpoint. Um, you know, he's been great for me, too, you know, as having the, having the uh, you know, the privilege of, being the only full-time NHL reporter who gets to interact with him on a daily basis, which is much more, much less uh, media scrutiny that he has to, that he had to face in Montreal when he had cameras around him every day. Um, so I think it's gone really well um, so far. I think he showed uh, what he can do. I think now that he's more comfortable uh, in terms of the system and in terms of his role in the team, I think he could be even better this year. Sticking with the blue line, and we touched on this before. How do you see Ryan Ellis's injury impacting what I think many people believe is the best blue line in hockey? Yeah, it's not going to be good. I mean, it's not going to be something, uh, you know, that's going to um, help them in any way. But I do think that they are equipped to handle it maybe better than any other team in the league uh, because of the fact that they have, you know, very other, they have other high-end defensemen on the back end, Roman Yossi, Matias Ackerman, and P.J. Subban. Um, I think Alexa Yemelin is a good stopgap, but uh, when Ryan Ellis returns, you know, Alexa Yemelin can either be a, a good third-pairing defenseman or a trade chip. Uh, you know, the Predators acquired him as insurance for Ryan Ellis. Uh, so if they feel like they have, um, if they feel like they have a luxury to trade from back there, I think they, you know, they could certainly entertain that option. Um, but you know, their third pair, you know, could be a combination of. Matt Irwin or Yannick Weber or Tony Potato or even Samuel Garrard, who's a you know a high-end defensive prospect who had a lot of points in the uh, Quebec League last year. Uh, he's one of those players that's young, too, is young enough that he either makes the team or goes back to junior. He can't go to the American League yet. 
so they do have options back there. I think that they can withstand his absence, Ryan Ellis's absence, for, for as long as they need to. But considering Ryan Ellis, uh, you know, had career highs across the board last year in ice time and goals and points and was fabulous in the playoffs, it, it's going to hurt them. But I think they're able to handle it better than it, maybe any other team. When you look at net, Pecorine has started at least 61 games, five of the last seven years, and one of those two years he didn't was a, a lockout-shortened season. Are, are they comfortable with him doing that again, or how, how do you see the goalie situation playing out? I think the Predators would probably be better served if they continue to monitor his starts, Pecorine's starts. Um, I, I don't think it's going to drastically change, but he started at least 60 games in each of the last three years. I think preferably they wouldn't do that this year i still think it would be close to 60 maybe 57 58 uh but it showed in the playoffs last year especially in the first three rounds that pecorino can still play at a near elite level and i think that one of the reasons why is because he had that rest last year and that a lot a lot of that had to do with the confidence they had in uc soros as a rookie goaltender and i would like i personally would like to see uc soros start in the realm of 20 to 25 games um, I think that would be a, a good number for him, and I think it would be good for Pecorine. Of course, his, his Stanley Cup final was less than ideal, particularly at the games in Pittsburgh where he got shelled. Uh, but he came back and bounced back in games three and four at home and tied the series at 2-2. Uh, so this team still has faith in him. My, my, an interesting thing, and this is something I'll be writing about before the season starts, is that the Predators have a rather large window uh, in, in which to compete, considering the contracts that they have. Philip Forsberg has five more years left. Ryan Johansson just signed for eight years. Victor Arvidsson just signed for seven years. Uh, Roman Yossi has three years left. Matthias Ekholm has three, year le- three years left. P.K. Subban has five or six years left. Ryan Ellis has two years left. So they have they have a, a large window to compete. Pecorino has two years left on his contract. He turns 35 or 36, I believe. I think it's 35 in November. So he'll be nearly 37 years old when his contract expires. You don't really want to hand out another contract to a 37-year-old goaltender. So they have a smaller window of, I think, two years to win with Tech Arena in net. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that regard. Well, let's talk about some of the changes you mentioned earlier, and we'll start with the losses. How do the losses of, of Mike Fisher, James Neal, and Colin Wilson impact this team? I think we'll, we'll start with Mike Fisher as the captain. Uh, and I, I still thought he could play. And he was still an effective player, but he was ready to retire. And he sounded like a guy at the end of the season that had his mind made up, even though he didn't make the official announcement until early August. Um, you know, you lose your captain for the second time in as many years. Of course, they traded Shea Weber last June for T.K. Subban. You know, I think Roman Yossi was the right choice. I don't think they'll go through as much of a leadership transition in the locker room as they did last year, but I do think they'll miss Mike Fisher, um, and this sort of ties into uh, you know Nick Benino, who we'll talk about shortly in terms of replacing him. You know, Colin Wilson, you know, is an interesting uh, situation. Uh, I think both the player and the team had felt like it was time to move on. You know, Colin Wilson was a former top ten draft pick in the NHL nearly ten years ago. And in the 14-15 season, had a career-high 20 goals, and then he scored five goals in six games against Chicago in the first round that year. Signed a four-year contract uh, that summer, and then just disappeared in the regular season the last two years. He had a great playoff two years ago when they made it to Game 7 against San Jose in the second round. I think he had uh, 13 points in 14 games. Um, But last year, he was hurt through some parts of the playoffs. It wasn't the same player. The stat that sticks out to me the most is, as I mentioned, he had 20 goals during the 14-15 regular season. In the 15-16 and 16-17 regular seasons combined, if I recall correctly, he had 18 goals. So he disappeared during the regular season. Both player and team thought it was time for a fresh start, so they sent him elsewhere. You know, I, I think it was good for him and good for his career. I don't think the players are really going to miss him too much because of the fact that he was so hot and cold. James Neal, as I mentioned, 20 goals every single season of his career at least, has reached 40 goals, had 30 goals for the Predators a couple of years ago. They protected Cali Youngfroke over James Neal in the expansion draft, mainly as a business decision because James Neal is a 30-year-old player who's now on an expiring contract. Um, the Predators do have younger players, Kevin Fiala, Ponce Dauber, pretty good bro. I mentioned Ryan Johansson, who, who could 
who should be able to collectively replace James Neal. Uh, but it is hard when you know you look at the players other than James who have scored 20 goals in each of their first nine seasons who are active. Uh, you know that's Alex Ovechkin, that's Patrick Kane, that's Jonathan Taves. I believe Steven Stamkos might be on that list. There's Thomas Vanek. There's Yarmer Yager, even though he isn't in the NHL right now. So those are some of the purest goal scorers in the league. And James Neal's up there. Uh, but the Predators, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty whether or not his future was, you know, in Nashville after the season. So of, of, of the players in terms of a of a purely production standpoint, James Neal will be the hardest for a play. Uh, you mentioned Nick Benino, and obviously he was a major part of Pittsburgh's two-cup runs last year, and, and Nashville saw that firsthand. But what are they looking for bringing him in, and, and also what's the uh, the thought process behind bringing Scott Hartnell back? Well, I think Nick Benino played a perfect role in the um, in Pittsburgh. He was a great third-line center behind Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. Um, and, you know, of course, a couple of years ago he had a great line with uh, Kessel and Haglin that really spurred the uh, the Penguins onto their first of two Stanley Cups in a row. Um, I'm skeptical uh, just because one his contract his annual average value went from I believe 1.9 million dollars to 4.1 million dollars, which happens on July 1st. Um, but he hasn't topped 40 points in I believe four years, and you're going to need more than that. Uh, you're probably going to need close to 50 to be an effective second line center. Um, he, in a lot of ways, you know, replicates what Mike Fisher did. You know, he's a, he can win faceoffs. He can play in the defensive zone. He can chip in on the power play. He can kill a game uh, during six-on-five situations. So, in a lot of ways, he sort of replaces Mike Fisher's contributions. And Mike Fisher, at times, was a second-line center for this team. So, they're comfortable having a player of that kind of uh, skill set as a second-line center. But the jury is still out in my in, in my book uh, about Nick Benino. Um, as for Scott Hartnell. You know, I thought he was still an incredibly effective player last year, despite you know, you know, having very little ice time and sort of falling out of John Tortorella's rotation in Columbus. I think a stat that stood out to me was that he actually outscored James Neal at even strength in terms of points, 34 to 28 last year, despite playing more than 200 fewer minutes at even strength than James Neal. Uh, he has familiarity with Peter Laviolette. They played, you know, they worked together in Philadelphia. You know, Scott Hartnell's lone all-star season and career high uh, were under uh, Pierre Laviolette in the Philadelphia, I believe it was six years ago. Uh, so there's that helps to me. It looks like he's going to be a top-six player for this team. He could play with Ryan Johansson and Philip Forsberg. He could play with Nick Bonino and Victor Arvidsson. You know, it, it could happen. So um, I, I do think that Scott Hartnell will have much larger of a role in Nashville than he did in Columbus. Do you see any prospects making an impact on this roster? Uh, there are two that come to mind because they're still in camp. One is Vladislav Kamenev, they're a Russian center, and then there's Sam Garrard, a defenseman on the uh, defenseman uh, who has been very productive in junior hockey. I think Kamenev could be ready. I believe he had 50 points last year in Milwaukee in the American League. Um, you know, they're very high on his ability uh, to create offense as well as be responsible defensively. Garrard's an interesting case because, as I mentioned earlier, he is one of those players that can't go back to junior. Excuse me, can't go to the American League. If he makes the team, he's on the team. If not, he has to go back to junior. Um, so, you know, with Ryan Ellis on injured reserve, presumably they have eight active, eight healthy defensemen in camp, and they could carry eight defensemen. But they, I think, you have to be pretty sure if, if, if Garrard is going to be ready for the NHL. You know, is it better for him to be a regular healthy scratch at the NHL level than, you know, playing in the junior league, which is a whole other conversation because I think he's outgrown the junior league, but doesn't really have another, he doesn't have another choice. You know, it's not, he can't play in the American League, even though he got a taste of it last year after his junior season ended. So those are two guys that I look to see if they could make the opening night roster next week. Uh, Adam, last one for you. I, I guess just to sort of wrap things up then, in your mind, what uh, what's the biggest obstacle facing the Predators in terms of them getting back to the Stanley Cup or maybe even winning it this year? I mean, there are a couple things, and I think we, we've kind of touched on them along the way. Um, you know, can the t- defense, you know, hold steady without Ryan Ellis for half the season? Can Nick Bonino prove that he is a, a, a capable second-line center in the NHL? You know, can Victor Arvidsson 
who had 31 goals last season, replicate that or come close to it or even do better than that? Now, can Philip Forsberg continue to score a lot of goals? Do the young players like Kevin Fiala and Pontus Auberg and Freddie, Freddie Goudreau, I mean, do they take a step forward? Do they all score 10 to 15 goals? You know, can Pecorine play like he did during the playoffs on a regular basis? Um, I, mean, are, I mean, they're kind of the same questions every team faces. Um, you know, I look at the rest of the league, excuse me, the rest of the conference, and I think it's fairly wide open. Um, you know, you look at the Central Division, uh, you know, Dallas looks great on paper, uh, but I need to see it in action before I can really have an opinion of whether or not the Stars are the real deal. Uh, I think Chicago it will always challenge for a, a title, but I think they're going to take a step back this year. Um, you know, St. Louis is, you know, St. Louis is a sneaky good team. You know, you're not even mentioning Minnesota and Winnipeg. Um, and then the other division you have it, you know, Edmonton and Anaheim. You know, I think they're, I think that the Central Division and the Western Conference are there for the taking for the National Predators. Um, you know, I'm not sure if they are, if I would have been destined to return to the Cup Final. Uh, but I do see them challenging for division title. And I do think that they have what it takes to get back to where they were and potentially win a championship. But I think in a lot of ways, it kind of goes back to the same questions you always have about the Predators. The defense is never really an issue. And for a lot of years, the goaltending wasn't either. It's the forwards. I mean, there are a lot of questions on the forward side. A lot of players need to step up. And if they aren't able to, then this team is going to take a step back. Adam Vingen, great stuff. We appreciate the insight a lot. and Enjoy the upcoming season, all right? All right, thank you, Greg. Sounds Thanks, good. Adam. That was uh, that. That team is so hard to read right now, and you and I have talked about this in the past. You know, you look; it's not just the fact that the Penguins won back-to-back cups. Most teams don't get to back-to-back cups, and a lot of it's because of injuries or just the simple wear and tear of playing an entire postseason. You know, when we did the preview of Tampa Bay earlier in the week, you mentioned one of the things that works in the Lightning's favor is as high as their expectations were going into last season. They didn't have to play, have to, is sort of a weird way to say it, but now they didn't play any playoff series last year, so they don't have any of that wear and tear. Nashville's got a ton of wear and tear. They're just as beat up as the Penguins are going into this season, and at the moment even more so because they've lost significant pieces in Ryan Ellis due to injury and James Neal due to the expansion draft. And let's not forget, they they just got into the playoffs last year. Yes, they <laughs> so, wouldn't have made it in the East. Right, so Ryan Ellis being out, and I'm saying, not saying that's going to play out again. Maybe this was part of the maturation process for this team, but... You take a, a very important piece off the blue line, and, and Adam's right. This blue line is terrific. They still have three elite pieces back there, so maybe they can absorb it. But you combine, start combining all the things that have happened already to them this summer, losing James Neal, who is has been an automatic twenty goals. That you, you can't you can't underplay that one. And then there there are other things you don't know how the leadership things are going to play out. Mike Fisher was an important part of this team for a very long time, so we'll see how all of that impacts. But when I look at this forward group, and, and that, that has been the question mark for this team for the longest time, I can't help wondering still, even though, you know, as Adam said, uh, Colorado's looking for a, a, an established NHL defenseman. Well, what if David Poyle, the, the GM of the year, just says no, and at some point Joe Sackick, Colorado's GM, has to say, I got to move this piece. So maybe he finds another package that works. If you add Matt Duchesne into this mix with, and then Nick Medino come, becomes your third line center, what are you thinking about this team at that point when Ryan Ellis comes back? Well, I think that I feel a lot better about it <laughs> because <laughs> yes. I think that you uh, you made the trade for Nick Bonino with the hope that he would be a number three center. And I, I thought Adam pointed this out pretty uh, astutely in there. You know, Bonino was, was great for Pittsburgh the last couple of years. He's maybe their best penalty killer. And he scored some timely goals in the playoffs. He was on that HBK line two years ago in the playoffs. It was great to have him there because he did a lot of the little things and he won a lot of face-offs and then he would score a timely goal. But he was being paid so little that he was a steal for Pittsburgh, really. And so when he came up with a timely goal in the playoffs, it was like, wow, that's, that's just a bonus on top of having these other guys. Nashville's not paying him to that way. They had to pay him a decent amount of money to get him into town. And you ideally, are, even if you're overpaying him, Ideally, you can still have him on the third line to, to play that role. He's not really – I don't see him as a high-end second-line center. I see him as a high-end third-line center for sure. But anytime a player like that switches environments, you don't know how they're going to react. And I don't know. I, if I'm the Predators and I'm serious about 
getting back to the Stanley Cup and trying to win. I'm not relying on Nick Benino for 20 goals. That's not who he is. Yeah. They have the cap space to add Matt Duchesne, by the way. That's where he's going to go, right? Maybe. I, I don't know. There are other teams in play, but it makes a lot of sense. But, again, it's going to have to be different terms because David Poyle's not giving up one of those top four defensemen. And, 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 you know, I don't, I don't know that's fair, right? If, if you're trading a center who you feel is a top two center, you pr- pretty much need to get a top four defenseman, don't yeah. you, if you're looking? I mean, unless you're really confident in the prospects that you're getting. Look at the GMs in play and, and a potential deal and tell me <laughs> yes. which side's going to win that trade. Okay? <laughs> that's, see, that's where I was going with this, too. <laughs> David Foyle has a really good history. Yeah. And Joe Sackick at the moment doesn't so and much. needs to move Matt Duchesne. Kind of, Joe Sackick just needs defensemen, period. He needs bodies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if he can't get Matthias Eck home now, which doesn't sound like he can, I've been saying all along, it feels like Colorado is going to end up getting ripped off or ripping themselves off in a Matthew Shane deal. And that's usually when David Poyle swoops in and gets his guy. So, all right, that's going to do it for us. We've got three teams left next week, and then the season starts next week. So who, who do we have left? I think we have both New York teams, don't we? We have the Islanders and the Rangers and the Calgary, and the Calgary Flames. Flames. Yep. So there you go. Those are the three teams left to preview. We'll do it next week. For Craig Morgan, not for Jamie Eisner, who's probably on vacation again. I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hat Trick Podcast.